Welcome to the weekly Comic Web Old Time Radio Program podcast. We sell old time radio programs, Golden Age comics in PDF format, and we have other free podcasts. Visit comicweb.com for more information or find us on Facebook and iTunes. This week, our podcast features an episode of Sleep No More called The Storm. It first aired on July 19th, 1956. In just a moment, Sleep No More, but first. No, no, just finishing my housework and enjoying NBC Bandstand on the radio. Oh, it's just fabulous. This week they have Burt Parks, of course, and the Glenn Miller Orchestra under the direction of Ray McKinley. But why am I telling you about it? Tune it in yourself. And enjoy the Glenn Miller Orchestra and singing star Bill Hayes live weekday mornings on most of these stations. Now stay tuned for Sleep No More on NBC. This is Nelson Olmstead. Sleep no more. Sleep no more. Turn down the lights. Sink back in your chair and don't look into the shadows. In the shadows, there may be moving things. Tonight, It may be you will sleep no more. Good evening. This is Ben Grauer introducing tonight's tale of terror, told by Nelson Armstead on the National Broadcasting Company's presentation of Sleep No More. The story of terror can be as simple as a sheeted ghost rattling chains. It can be a complex and hidden world of horror, lurking in such unholy dimensions as only the dead and the moonstruck can glimpse. Or it can be those terrible, fathomless shadows which lie buried deep in the primitive mind of civilized man. And for this evening, well, Nelson Olmstead, tell us about this evening's story. It's called A Storm by McKnight Melmar, who, incidentally, is a woman. It's a story about a woman who comes home one night to a big, empty house to find a pinpoint of light where there should be no light. That sounds chilling. So let Nelson Armstead tell us about the woman alone at night and the storm. She inserted her key in the lock and turned the knob. The march wind snatched the door out of her hand and slammed it back against the wall. It took strength to close it against the pressure of the gale. She breathed a sigh of thankfulness of being home again and in time. In rain like this, the crossroads always were flooded. Half an hour later, her cab couldn't have got through the rising water. And there was no alternative route. There was no light anywhere in the house. Ben wasn't home then. As she turned on the lamp by the sofa, she had a sense of anticlimax. All the way home, she had been visiting her sister. She had seen herself going into a lighted house to Ben, who would be sitting by the fire with his paper. She had taken delight in picturing his happy surprise at seeing her home a week earlier than he'd expected her. 
She had known just how his round face would light up, how his eyes would twinkle behind his glasses, how he would catch her by the shoulders and look down into her face to see the changes a month had made in her, and then kiss her resoundingly on both cheeks like a French general bestowing a decoration. Then she would make coffee and find a piece of cake, and they would sit together by the fire and talk. But Ben wasn't here. She looked at the clock in the mantel and saw it was nearly ten. Well, perhaps he hadn't planned to come home tonight, as he wasn't expecting her. Even before she had left, he frequently was in the city all night because business kept him too late to catch the last train. Well, if he didn't come home soon, he wouldn't be able to make it at all. She began to walk through the house, turning on lights as she went. Ben had left it in fairly good order. There was very little trace of an untidy masculine presence, but, but then he was a tidy man. She made coffee. The wind hammered at the door and the windows. Listening, she wished for Ben almost feverishly. She never had felt so alone, and he was such a comfort. He had been so good about her going for this long visit, made because her sister was ill. He had seen to everything and had put her on the train with her arms loaded with books and candy and fruit. She knew those farewell gifts had meant a lot to him. He didn't spend money easily. To be quite honest, he was a little close. But he was a good husband. She repeated it to herself firmly as she sipped her coffee. He was a good husband. Suppose he was ten years older than she and a little set in his ways, a little, perhaps, dictatorial at times and moody. He'd given her what she thought she wanted, security and a home of her own. If security were not enough, she couldn't blame him for it. Her eye caught a shred of white protruding under a magazine on the table beside her. She put out a hand toward it, yet her fingers were almost reluctant to grasp it. She pulled it out nevertheless and saw that it was, as she had known instinctively, another of the white envelopes. It was empty, and it bore, as usual, the neat typewritten address, Benjamin T. Wilson, Esquire, Wildwood Road, Fairport, Connecticut. The postmark was New York City. It never varied. She felt the familiar constriction about the heart as she held it in her hands. What these envelopes contained, she never had known. What she did know was their effect on Ben. After receiving one, and one came every month or two, he was irritable, at times almost ugly. Their peaceful life together fell apart. At first, she had questioned him, had striven to soothe and comfort him, but she soon had learned that this only made him angry, and of late, she had avoided any mention of them. This one was postmarked three days before. If Ben got home tonight, he would probably be cross, and the storm wouldn't help his mood. Just the same, she wished he would come. She tore the envelope into tiny pieces and tossed them into the fireplace. As she straightened, a movement at the window caught her eye. She froze there, not breathing, still half bent toward the cold fireplace, her hand extended. The glimmer of white at the window behind the sheeting blur of rain had been, she was sure of it, a human face. There had been eyes. She was certain there had been eyes staring in at her. The wind's shout took on a personal, threatening note. She was rigid for a long time, never taking her eyes from the window. But nothing moved there now, except the water on the window pane. 
Beyond it, there was blackness, and that was all. The only sounds were the threshing of the trees, the roar of the water, the ominous howl of the wind. If only Ben would come home. If only she weren't so alone. She shivered and pulled Ben's coat tighter around her and told herself she was becoming a morbid fool. Nevertheless, she found the aloneness intolerable. Her ears strained to hear prowling footsteps outside the windows. She became convinced that she did hear them, slow and heavy. Well, perhaps Ben could be reached at the hotel where he sometimes stayed. She no longer cared whether her homecoming was a surprise to him. She wanted to hear his voice. She went to the telephone and lifted the receiver. Oh, the line was quite dead. The wires were down, of course. She fought panic. Now, the face at the window had been an illusion, a trick of light. And the sound of footsteps was an illusion, too. Actual ones would be inaudible in the noise made by the wild storm. Nobody would be out tonight. Nothing threatened her, really. The storm was held at bay behind these walls, and in the morning, the sun would shine again. The thing to do was to make herself as comfortable as possible and settle down with a book. There was no use going to bed. She couldn't possibly sleep. She would only lie there wide awake and think of that face at the window and hear those footsteps. She would get some wood and build a fire in the fireplace. She hesitated at the top of the cellar stairs. The lights, as she switched it on, seemed insufficient. The concrete wall at the foot of the stairs was dank with moisture and somehow gruesome. And wind was chilling her ankles. Rain was beating in through the outside door to the cellar because that door was standing open. The inner bolt sometimes didn't hold, she knew very well. If it had not been carefully closed, the wind could have loosened it. It took her a long minute to nerve herself to go down the steps and reach out into the darkness for the door latch. The wind helped her and slammed the door resoundingly. She jammed the rusty bolt home with all her strength and then tested it to make sure it would hold. She almost sobbed with relief of knowing it to be firm against any intruder. She had only to get an armful of wood. Then she could have a fire. She would have light and warmth and comfort. She would forget these terrors. The cellar smelled of dust and old moisture. The beams were fuzzed with cobwebs. There was only the one dim bulb. The wood pile was in the far corner, away from the light. She stopped and peered around. Nothing could hide here. The cellar was too open. The supporting stanchions too slender to hide a man. She almost ran to the wood pile. What was it? Not a noise. Something she had seen as she hurried across the dusty floor. Something odd. She searched with her eyes. Why, why, it was the spark of light she had seen where no spark should be. Her eyes widened, round and dark as the frightened deer's. Her old trunk that stood against the wall was open just a crack. And from the crack came this tiny pinpoint of reflected light to prick the cellar's room. She went toward it like a woman hypnotized. It was only one more insignificant thing, like the envelope on the table, the vision of the face at the window, the open door. There was no reason for her to feel so smothered in terror. 
yet she was sure she had not only closed the lid of the trunk, but clamped it shut. She was sure because she kept two or three old coats in it, wrapped in newspapers and tightly shut away from moths. But now the lid was raised perhaps an inch, and the twinkle of light was still there. She threw back the lid. For a long moment, she stood looking down into the trunk while each detail of its contents burned itself on her brain. Each tiny detail was indelibly clear and never to be forgotten. She could not have stirred a muscle in that moment. Horror was a black cloak thrown around her, stopping her breath, hobbling her limbs. Then her face dissolved into formlessness, and she slammed down the lid and ran up the stairs like a mad thing. She was breathing again, in deep, sobbing breaths that tore at her lungs. She shut the door at the top of the stairs with a crash that shook the house. Then she turned the key. Her old trunk had held the curled-up body of a woman. Her first impulse was to get out of the house. But in the time it took her to get to the front door, she remembered the face of the window. Oh, perhaps she hadn't imagined it after all. Perhaps it was the face of a murderer. A murderer waiting for her out there in the storm, ready to spring on her out of the dark and the rain. She fell into the big chair, her huddled body shaken by great tremors. She couldn't stay here, not with that thing in her trunk. Yet she dared not leave. Her whole being cried out for Ben. He would know what to do. She closed her eyes, opened them again, rubbed them hard. The picture still burned into her brain as if it had been etched with acid. Her hair, loosened, fell in soft, straight wisps around her forehead, and her mouth was slack with terror. She had not seen the face of the woman. The head had been tucked down into the hollow of the shoulder, and a shower of fair hair had fallen over it. The woman had worn a red dress. One hand had rested near the edge of the trunk, and on its third finger, there had been a man's ring. A signet bearing the raised figure of a rampant lion with a small diamond between its paws. It had been the diamond that caught the light. The little bulb in the corner of the cellar had picked out this ring from the semi-darkness and made it stand out like a beacon. She would never be able to forget it. Shudders continued to shake her. She bit her tongue and pressed her hand against her jaw to stop the chattering of her teeth. She drew the coat closer about her, trying to dispel the mortal cold that held her. Slowly, something beyond the mere fact of murder, of death, began to penetrate her mind. Slowly, she realized that beyond this fact, there would be consequences. That body in the cellar was not an isolated phenomenon. Some train of events had led to its being there and would follow its discovery there. There would be policemen. At first, the thought of policemen was a comforting one. Big, brawny men in blue who would take the thing out of her cellar and take it away so she never need think of it again. Then, 
she realized it was her cellar. Hers and Ben's. And policemen are suspicious and prying. Would they think she had killed the woman? Could they be made to believe she never had seen her before? Or would they think Ben had done it? Would they take the letters in the white envelopes and Ben's absences on business and her own visit to her sister, about which Ben had been so helpful, and out of them build a double life for him? Would they insist that the woman had been a discarded mistress who had hounded him with letters until out of desperation he had killed her? Well, that was a fantastic theory, really. But the police might do that. They might. Her craving for Ben became a frantic need. If only he would come home. Come home and take that body away. Hide it somewhere so the police couldn't connect it with this house. He was strong enough to do it. She crouched there, shaking. It was as if the jaws of a great trap had closed on her. On one side, the storm and the silence of the telephone. And on the other, the presence of the prowler under that still cramped figure in her trunk. She was caught between them, helpless. As if to accent her helplessness, the wind stepped up a shriek and a tree crashed thunderously out on the road. She heard glass shatter. Her quivering body stiffened like a drawn bow. Was it the prowler attempting to get in? She forced herself to her feet and made a round of the windows. All the glass was intact. Nothing could make her go down into the cellar to see if anything had happened there. The voice of the storm drowned out all but the sound of the clock. Yet she couldn't rid herself of the fancy that she heard footsteps going round and round the house, that eyes sought an opening and spied upon her. A kind of numbness began to come over her, as if her capacity for fear were exhausted. She went back to the chair and curled up in it. Eleven midnight. She huddled there, not moving, not thinking, not even afraid, only numb for another hour. Then the storm held its breath for a moment, and in the brief space of silence, she heard footsteps, firm and quick and loud. A key turned in the lock, the door opened, and Ben came in. He was dripping dirty and white with exhaustion, but it was Ben. Once she was sure of it, she flung herself on him, babbling incoherently of what she had found. He kissed her lightly on the cheek and took her arms down from around his neck, and he said, Here, here, my dear. <laughs> You get soaked. I'm drenched to the skin. Oh, I had to walk in from the crossroads. What a night. She tried again to tell him of the past hours, but again he cut her short. No, now, wait a minute, my dear. I can see you're bothered about something, but just wait till I get into some dry things, and then I'll come down and we'll talk things over. Now, suppose you rustle up some coffee and toast. Oh, I'm done up. The whole trip out was a nightmare. And I didn't know if I'd ever make it from the crossing. No, I've been hours. Yes, he did look tired, she thought with concern. Now that he was back, she could wait. The past hours had taken on the quality of a nightmare. Horrifying, but curiously unreal. With Ben here, so solid and commonplace and cheerful... She began to wonder if the hours were a nightmare. She even began to doubt the reality of the woman in the trunk, although she could see her as vividly as ever. Perhaps only the storm was real. She went to the kitchen and began to make fresh coffee. 
The chair, still wedged against the kitchen door, was a reminder of her terror. And now that Ben was home, it seemed silly, and she put it back in its place by the table. He came down very soon, before the coffee was ready. Oh, how good it was to see him in that old gray bathrobe of his, his hands thrust into its pockets. She was almost shamefaced when she told him of the face in the window, the open cellar door, and finally of the body in the trunk. None of it, she saw quite clearly now, could possibly have happened. Ben said so, without hesitation. But he came to put an arm around her. He said, Well, now, you poor child, the storm has scared you to death, and I don't wonder. It's given you the jitters. She smiled dubiously. She said, Yes, I'm almost beginning to think so. Now that you're back, it seems so safe, but... But you will look in the trunk, Ben. I've, I've got to know. I can see her so plainly. How could I imagine a thing like that? Of course I'll look, if it'll make you feel better. Well, then I'll do it now. Then I can have my coffee in peace. He went to the cellar door and opened it and snapped on the light. Her heart began to pound once more, a deafening roar in her ears. She could not have imagined it. It was incredible that she could have believed for a minute that her mind had played such tricks on her. In another moment, Ben would know it, too. She heard the thud as he threw back the lid of the trunk. She clutched at the back of the chair, waiting for his voice. It came in an instant. There's nothing here but a couple of bundles. Come take a look. Nothing? Her knees were weak as she went down the stairs, down into the cellar again. It was still musty and damp and draped with cobwebs. The light was still dim. It was just as she remembered it, except the wind was whistling through a broken window and rain was spattering in on the bits of shattered glass on the floor. The branch lying across the sill had removed every scrap of glass from the frame and left not a single jagged edge. Ben was standing by the open trunk, waiting for her. His stocky body was a bulwark. He said, You see, there's nothing. Just some old clothes of yours, I guess. She went to stand beside him. Was she losing her mind? Would she now see that crushed figure in there, see the red dress, the smooth, shining knees when Ben could not, and the ring with the diamond between the lion's paws? Her eyes looked almost reluctantly into the trunk. Why, why, it is empty. There were the neat, newspaper-wrapped packages she'd put away so carefully, just as she had left them deep in the bottom of the trunk, and nothing else. Why, she must have imagined the body. She was light with the relief the knowledge brought her. The actual physical danger did not exist and never had existed. Why, the threat of the law hanging over Ben had been based in a dream. And she said, I, I dreamed it all. I must have. Yet it was so horribly clear, and I wasn't asleep, and I thought... Oh, Ben, I thought... What did you think, my dear? He stood looking down at her with an immobility that chilled her more than the cold wind that swept in through the broken window. She tried to read his face, but the light from the single bulb was too weak. It left his features shadowed in broad, dark planes that made him look like a stranger and somehow sinister. And she said... I... What was it you thought? She backed away from him. He moved then. It was only to take his hands from his pockets 
to stretch his arms toward her, but she stood there for an instant staring at the thing that left her stricken with a voiceless scream forming in her throat. She was never to know whether his arms had been outstretched to take her within their shelter or to clutch at her white neck, for she turned and fled, stumbling up the stairs in a mad panic of escape. He shouted, Janet! Janet! His steps were heavy behind her. He tripped on the bottom step and fell on one knee and cursed. Terror lent her strength and speed. She could not be mistaken, although she had seen it only once. She knew that on the little finger of his left hand, there had been the same, the unmistakable ring the dead woman had worn. Oh, the blessed wind snatched the front door from her and flung it wide, and she was out in the safe, dark shelter of the storm. Nelson Olmsted. The story you heard tonight was written by a woman and was about a woman. In the moments that remain tonight, and while you're in such a wonderful, sleepless mood, I'd like you to hear the famous poem Edgar Allan Poe wrote about a woman, his wife. Here is Annabelle Lee. <laughs> It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with the love the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulcher in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, this was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we. And neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And the stars never rise but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide... I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the side of the sea.
Sleep No More is a horror program, but with a bit of a twist. It's narrated by Nelson Almstead, spelled like Olmstead, so it can be mispronounced. In Sleep No More, Almstead narrated his own adaptations of terror tales and science fantasy stories. Ben Grauer was the program's announcer. There is no cast of actors. Almstead plays all of the parts. In order for this to work, Almstead has to be very engaging, and luckily he is. Almstead was such a good teller of tales that he was NBC's resident storyteller, a position he held for over a decade, beginning with The World's Greatest Short Stories and Dramas by Almstead. Each episode of Sleep No More is a half hour, but each episode consists of two 15-minute unrelated stories. So, how did Olmsted get his start narrating stories? When he wanted to break into the field in the 1930s, he noted that dramatic shows were expensive and there were no budgets available, but that the cheapest dramas for radio I could think of was the good literature read aloud, and he made quite a career of it. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week.